You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. Uh, I love this conversation. Uh, I'm talking to Catherine Morgan Schaffler, who is a psychotherapist, writer, speaker, and former on-site therapist at Google. Um, she has degrees and trained at the University of California, Berkeley, and Columbia University. And she's got a terrific new book. It's called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Enjoy the pod. <music> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the Catherine Morgan Schaffler, welcome to the pod. Thank you for having me. Um, there's this lovely passage in your terrific new book where you write, quote, think of someone you love. Now think of the sound of that person's laughter. Is that sound not perfect? There's nothing you could change about that laughter to make it better. It's already complete. It's already whole. We use the word perfect to emphasize completeness. Talk mm-hmm. more about that. It's beautiful. And then talk more about that idea of when we say perfect, maybe we mean complete. Kelly, jumping right in. I love this. <laughs> yes. So if you take the word perfect back to its Latin root, you get to the word perfacere, per meaning complete and facere meaning do. And when we describe something as perfect, what we're saying is this thing is completely done. There is not one more thing you could add to it to make it whole because it already is whole. And when I listen to people as a psychotherapist describe perfect moments, they are not describing the material. They are describing a feeling of interconnectedness to their own wholeness to their own connection with something, someone else, a moment in which they wouldn't change a thing, right? And when I listen to people describe moments that should have been perfect, but weren't, they're describing exterior stilted perfection moments that, you know, everything was set up and it happened on time and it looked so beautiful. And yet inside they feel a disconnectedness. They're not in touch with their wholeness or their completeness. And so it didn't end up feeling perfect it's i love the way you describe that i just had what i'll reference as a perfect moment uh which yes. was i was on instagram and my friend brad morris who's an alum of second city uh has written for a bunch of programs been on a bunch of programs he started doing this it's video but he's not he's not showing himself it's just audio and it's him in his car and he's doing commercial jingles as if randy newman wrote them mm-hmm. and they it, it is he doesn't do the best Randy Newman, but it's 
pretty good. I, I shared it with my friend Brendan across the hallway, and I'm like, "Is this not perfect?" Yeah, you can hear you can hear the he's, you can hear he's in the car. These things are just clearly improvised. They're short. Yeah. They're, but I, but I'm like, but it's it's perfect. And and yeah. and um and again, we're you know one, once again on this podcast, metaphors lead us astray. You know, we 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 culturally we have this idea of perfect that is mm-hmm. very different from the root. Uh, where mm-hmm. it comes from, and and I think it probably causes more problems than um, than helps us. Yeah, uh, I love I love that, and I think when you identify as a perfectionist and reframe, you are not seeking flawlessness. You are seeking wholeness. You're seeking that feeling of that you just described where you're like, isn't this perfect? You can hear, you can hear the other cars, you know, honking and whatever else is the din in the background. And it, and it is just totally complete. And people have that sense of wholeness inside of them. And that's what the book is really a call to remember is that when you are born, you're born whole. You don't have to do anything to become a whole human being. You don't become more of a human being when you learn to talk or walk or make people laugh or look a certain way. And so knowing that as a perfectionist, that's what you're trying to connect to, not a sense of flawlessness, invites, I hope, people to really engage in a different relationship with their perfectionism. Uh, so he, I was reading this in the in the airport in Washington, D.C., coming back from a speaking date. <laughs> and I didn't get too far in the book when I realized, and I sort of said out, I think I actually said it out loud, even though no one was with me. Uh, I am not, I am not a perfectionist. I am mm-hmm. in no way a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, there's a bit of me search here, right? For you, like, like you have, you have some perfectionist tendencies. I am a perfectionist. Okay. 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm here and, and I am, Curious whether it's in your practice or doing interviews for the book, have you come across people talking about like, well, that's not me, and then maybe they are, or that it's it's th- there's clearly people who just aren't that that's not. I mean, I have plenty of things that I'm get caught up on. <laughs> there's no, yeah, know, there's plenty of problems yeah, yeah. here, but but I realize that <laughs> part of it. Well, part of it is also where I work because when you work inside improvisation to create stuff. Yeah. We have a messy creative process. Like I, mm-hmm. I had to go to Toronto to give notes on a new show that we're working on. And like, it's totally incomplete and there's stuff that didn't work. And it's like, and I'm, I can walk in there and be like, no, it's good. Like that's, that's fine. That that's what it's going to be. And I know for people who are newer to here, they really struggle with that. Cause they're like, ah, like, isn't it supposed to be done? And I'm like, nope. It gets mm-hmm. cooked in front of the audience. Yeah. Well, So I never thought of myself as a perfectionist either. And part of why I like that you said me search, part of why I felt compelled to write this book is I heard someone say in the process of writing it, that we write the books we most need ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I really started to see patterns in my work. I worked with a lot of perfectionists. I noticed them in myself and thought, how can it be that I'm a perfectionist if I'm someone who does not know where their phone is 95% mm-hmm. of the of the day mm-hmm. and I don't mind a little mess and I don't mind a little this and that and I didn't fit into this type A mold and once I dug deeper it was just layer after layer after layer of understanding this construct in so much more of a kaleidoscopic way than this little tiny narrow way that we talk about it in our mainstream culture. Perfectionism is not about rigidity exclusively. That's part Mm -hmm. of some iterations of it. But I identified five different types of perfectionists. And in my view, perfectionism is a natural innate human impulse. I mean, human beings have the ability to understand and perceive our reality. Then we have the cognitive capacity to say, oh, this other thing could be happening too. And imagine these other realities, both improved and, you know, quote unquote, worse off. And perfectionists to me are people who see that gap, who regularly see that gap and more often than not feel compelled to actively bridge the gap in a way that they cannot shut off. And so Mm -hmm. when I use the term perfectionist, 
I'm talking about a patterned way of relating to oneself and the world. You're also talking about essentially that 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 you talk about adaptive perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and inside that, recognizing that adaptive perfectionist that that's that's kind of a good place to be that that's like an okay place to work from yeah so the research um in the last few decades has really begun to explore why some perfectionists thrive and feel good and feel joyful pretty regularly and why other perfectionists really suffer mm-hmm. in meaningful ways that disrupt their quality of life and disrupt their relationships with other people and the way that the language in the research world is framed is mostly adaptive and maladaptive, you know, healthy and unhealthy. For me, perfectionism, it's fluid, which means every perfectionist is an adaptive and maladaptive perfectionist, really, okay. yeah. because this is a context dependent situation. So you could be one type of perfectionist when it comes to the beginning stages of dating, let's say, and not a perfectionist at all at work, or you could go home. I mean, mental health to, to fly 30,000 feet in the air to me is a very fluid thing. Like if Mm -hmm. you go home for the holidays, your mental health might take a a little dip, a little dive, a little plummet into the sea, whatever you, you know, because we're not just operating in a vacuum. We're, deeply influenced by the people and environments around us. And our work environment is often very different than our home environment, is often very different than the events that are happening in our lives. If we just had a baby, if we just moved, if we're grieving the loss of someone, this stuff all swirls together in this sphere. And that is how I think about mental health, not categorically, which is like, I'm depressed, damn it, or I'm not depressed. Phew. I dodged I dodged around that. You know, it's like that's not how mental health works. And so anytime you're talking about an identity construct that has to do with mental health, like healthy perfectionism or unhealthy perfectionism, you have to recognize that it's operating on a spectrum and that it's very context dependent. How dare you inflict nuance into a conversation? <laughs> this is, you need to sell books. <laughs> so, uh, which is part of the reason I, I, I love I love this book. And the and the other reality too, which didn't surprise me, which is how gendered a conversation it is around the yeah. I mean, I immediately was like, oh, I can see this stuff in my wife, my brilliant wife, in terms of this, and my brilliant colleagues that I mm-hmm. work with who are. Uh, I work with a lot of women and they're super talented and, and they, and, and over the years, again, having been someone who's been in the industry for three decades or more is recognizing, oh, you got dinged for that in a way a man would never get dinged. Never. And there's also something about um, making your, you know, you can't be a perfectionist without being an ambitious person. And for women, we get this message constantly, implicitly, not nobody's telling us this, but it is, you better make your ambition invisible and palatable. And anytime you announce anything, it's automatically aggressive. Anytime you say, oh, I really want that. I really want this. You know, it, it is just to immediate penalty. Mm-hmm. And You know, one of the ways we implicitly penalize women is saying, listen, you're being a little too perfectionistic about this. Okay. Just, just scale it back. Just calm down. You know, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the details and just balance out. Be balanced. That's a message that women get all the time. And nobody tells male perfectionists to balance themselves out. Their perfectionism is just integrated into the holistic view of who they are. So when you think of James Cameron or Gordon Ramsay or Steve Jobs, you think, oh, you know, they're just, they're just a perfectionist. That's how they work. And Mm -hmm. we celebrate them for it. And they're visionaries and they're alpha males. But when you think of, you know, a self-proclaimed perfectionist like Serena Williams, she's, you know, She's getting penalties thrown at her. Literal penalties. Losing games. Jimmy Connors did that every single match and nothing ever happened to him. 
Jimmy Connors called the, I don't, I don't know anything about sports, but the person in the tall chair that tells whether you, you umpire. hit the ball correctly or not. Um, is it an umpire in tennis? I think it's an umpire. Referee, whatever. One of the, that person, Jimmy Connors screamed at the tennis umpire person. You are an abortion. You are an abortion <laughs> with no penalty. No, and nothing. Won the game. And of <sighs> He's course, a go-getter. This is what you don't understand. He's a go-getter. Um, yeah, you know, he's just impassioned. He's just, you know, playing with his heart. He's putting it all out there. And it's like Serena Williams assertively, not aggressively, assertively proclaims her view of what happened in that controversial 2018 U.S. Open. And... um she loses the point, loses the game, and it's just Phyllis Chesler, the the famed psychologist and feminist, has the best quote for that, which is, how bizarre, how familiar. Ugh. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Um, all right. One of the sections of the book that kind of blew my mind, it, it, it was your talk around superficial control and authentic power. And I don't think I I have interrogated this. I don't see it a lot in terms of other stuff I've, I've, I've read in terms of inter- interrogating this, and it seems really important. Um, uh, you say, quote, when you're disconnected to your self-worth, you're fixated on control. You may be experienced as demanding or needy to be around because you're so attached to a specific outcomes unfolding. You need something to happen in a certain way to feel relief. Whether you realize it or not, you become desperate, end quote. Mm -hmm. And this just explained so much to me in terms of behavior I've seen from terrific humans. Where I'm like, why do you, why do you need it so much to go this way? Why, yeah. why are you holding these, these cards in, in, in the way you're holding often with people who I felt had power, right? but, but they, but for whatever reason, they didn't perceive that. So they moved control that, that feels mm-hmm. like what's going on. Yeah. I mean, for the best way that I understand things is to think about them in relation to what they're not. That's always where I start when mm-hmm. I'm like, what is power. You, everyone has their own definition of that. Well, let me think about what it's not. And when I think about what power is not, I think about control and that they're really opposites. And I think it comes from the place inside yourself of if you don't understand your worth, meaning it doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter if they agree with me or love me or stay with me or give me money or give me that title. I still am worthy of all the joy, dignity, connection, freedom, um, and love that I, that the quote unquote best version of me would be worthy of. Right. So that's when you're in your power, you know, that, and you're not afraid because that doesn't change. You know, to me, my definition of power is understanding the immutability of your worth. But when you're afraid, which the healthiest people still get afraid, everybody gets afraid. We're human Mm -hmm. beings. Mm -hmm. When you're afraid, you get in this contracted space instead of this open, expansive place. And from that place of contraction, you are operating in fear. So all of your decisions are being made from a posture of defense and protection. And so you're getting petty. Control is petty where power is generous. Control is myopic because you have to plan, okay, if I do this and then that happens, then I'll do this. And it's like one step at a time. Whereas power is visionary. You know, control is manipulative Mm -hmm. and power seeks to be influential. You know, and power is always the upgrade. Right, right, right. I had to explain to someone a few weeks ago what the term soft power meant. And mm-hmm. now that I'm talking to you, I'm recognizing, oh, we invented another term because we couldn't let just power be what it is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, well, soft power is when you, it's like, no, 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 that's actual power. 
but we again our metaphor for power is gordon gecko and wall street or whatever what, name your character right. that, that is uh, that is manipulative that is um abusive often that has to has to strip even even comparing the putin biden speeches of a day or so ago where i was like mm-hmm. uh, biden in poland was just like even though he was speaking very the words were forceful but they were dealt in this very sort of like interesting not like sort of angry way in which despots have to sort of talk mm-hmm. yeah and I, and I think you're bringing up a really interesting connection which is authority and you yeah. can be an authority figure and have no power right and i use the yeah. example of the book as like the boss no one really listens to or respects and you can be someone who has no authority and yet is so powerful yeah. Because they are natural, a natural leader, because they're influencing the decision making of the entire team, because people want to follow them. Yeah. And so what I love about real power is anyone can have it. You don't yeah. need a title to grant you power. And we are all powerful in our own way. Um, and in a real way, not in a not in a like Hallmark channel way. I'm talking about real power is being able to, you know, if you're a person in power and you give power to someone else, you don't lose anything, right? right? If you're a person in control and you give control to someone else, you're relinquishing your control. So control is just this like one dimensional thing that when we're seeking it, that is an immediate signal that you're not in a healthy space because control is an, is an illusion anyway it's not real yeah, there are yeah, like two yeah. things in life you can control you know and the rest you have to surrender to and you can't be in control and in surrender at the same time and to what be in two- surrender you have to be in power what are the two things you can control i don't know probably um what you're wearing maybe <laughs> and maybe. uh not always not always. I mean, I'm thinking I'm in my New York City apartment. I'm thinking oh, you could control the temperature in your house. No, you can't. <laughs> no, can't do it. Can't do it. Okay, you can so maybe, I, yeah, I want to backtrack mean, one thing you can control. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I, early in my career, I worked in the Second City box office. Very powerful position because mm-hmm. we're sold out all the time and people people want tickets and you can you can abuse that or, or not. The other people I discovered very quickly who are very powerful, uh, the concierges at the major hotels in Chicago. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. you know, like uh, the the concierge at the Four Seasons was someone who, and the thing I loved about her, I'm forgetting her name right now, uh, she, she's retired, was she, like, she never, she could get anything from anyone. Mm-hmm. And she was so kind and so mm-hmm. cool. And this was just someone who was like, oh, be, you know, like, and they, 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 but I think in that position in terms of, you know, you're the four seasons in Chicago. So you're dealing with the wealthiest people coming to the city of Chicago. And when you sort of understand what you might in your position as a concierge, it's like, you better adapt to that. Because, you know, yelling and screaming might get you something today, but it's like, for sure, not going to get that for you tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people don't want to be around people who are controlling, period. No, no, they don't. Um, So I'm, uh, I give a lot of talks and one of my stock lines about improvisation is that it's noisy group mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Now this has worked well for me. I've done it in uh, TEDx talks, a number of them. And and I think the idea is, is, is solid, but I'm, I'm thinking I might have to drop mindfulness after reading in your book that you saw a brand of mayonnaise called mindful mayo. (laughs) I think, I think you have ruined one of my It is one of those words that's like, everywhere everywhere it's i everywhere. see it's almost like if we were in college and we played a drinking game called like drink every time you see mindfulness i wouldn't survive for four hours no it's everywhere and so what i love because we also talk about this a lot at second city and in the improv world in general is this idea around presence mm-hmm. um and because when you are improvising you have to be fiercely present in the moment you can't mm-hmm. be ruminating about the past You can't be fantasizing about the future. All you have to survive is the person in front of you with what they're saying. And the Mm -hmm. rule of improvisation is my job is to make you look good. My my job is to save you. And that's your job. And when that's the situation, what an this is why people 
do this. This is why they they spend the money to take these classes because yeah. getting that moment with someone, another human, where the, you know what this agreement is, and that's the way you're going to play. Mm-hmm. You realize the deficit of that behavior in the life, in, certainly in the work world we live, but also the life we we live. That's we don't have as many of those moments as we really should. Because, like, why why are we yeah. here? We're not doing those sorts of things. I feel exactly the same way about my work, about yeah. practicing. Sure. And, you know, the thing I love about therapy is it, there aren't very many rules. You could say anything, really. People are like, oh, I don't, I'm, I'm scared to say this to you. I'm like, try me. I have heard everything. Right, right exactly. But yeah. the the one rule is, you know, you got to try to be as honest as possible and you're as present as possible. Nobody's looking at their phone. Nobody's doing this. And, and it's like what so many times people say to me, how can you listen to people's problems all day? And that signals to me that they have not been to therapy or they have not found the right therapist because that's not what therapy is. But I also think, oh my God, I get to just have honest conversations with people all day, fully present. I have three clocks in my office including a digital one under the couch, because I don't know if four minutes have gone by or if I'm approaching the end of a session and I need those like markers. But I'm curious what you mean by group mindfulness. Do you just mean everybody has that shared goal of- Well, what what I'm equating it to, because I also use the line uh, that improv is yoga for your social skills. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 in, in, in my understanding of yoga and mindfulness, and it, it, most of that is a solitary pursuit. Most of that is about you sort of getting yourself, but we don't live in a solitary world. We live mm-hmm. in a world with other humans. And when you're mm-hmm. improvising in a class, there's 17 humans, um, yeah. that you are then doing scenes with, and then they might walk on. And so how do you maintain that level of presence and attention and listening and all those things? when all these people are around. And that's what improv teaches you, which is if you want the secret, why so many famous people have kind of out of second city, it's, it's not like there was the same casting director from 1959 to now I did it for a certain period and other people are doing it now, whatever. It's this skill that they all learn that like, there's a reason Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, if you look at their career, they're surrounded by all these other wonderful artists. Like, no, they all want to work together and they're all practiced in the improv. So they all kind of get it. They get, yeah. they get that language. They get what they're supposed to do. They get the idea of shared positivity. It's a mm-hmm. very pro-social um, art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you probably don't know this, but I mean, the games that make up all this work were actually developed by a social worker in the twenties and thirties who job, whose job mm-hmm. is to um, uh, help immigrant children uh, better assimilate into the city of Chicago. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, but her name is Violet. Googling Baldwin. that as soon as we get it's amazing. Finished here. So the yeah. so the the basis of this work was social work, mm-hmm. and, and and it was all about how do we empathize, how do we collaborate, how how do we do the these things together, especially if we're coming from all these points of difference. Yeah. And so that, especially in the world we live in, well, then this is this is what's happened with improv, right? Which is it started so niche, it started just creating these great comedy performers, and now. It's uh, we interviewed a month ago, Michael Alsey, who has a book on therapy and improvisation. He comes from very much of a jazz background. Right. But still similar sort of uh, ethics and ideas uh, and modes. Uh, and you, But you see improv. We get hired by Fortune 500 companies and it's it's, it, you know, in, in the military, they're teaching this sort of stuff because you have to. Yeah. How do you remain agile um, uh, in the face of, of, of all that noise? Yeah. Uh, so, so I was finding a lot. When I was reading your your book, too, about um, you say in the book, quote, your presence is the epicenter of your power. Mm-hmm. And what I loved about that was this idea of we had a like a Hindu monk on the podcast who talked about you are where you put your attention. Yeah. And that that phrase just really it sticks with me now, which yeah. is like, well, where when I am, I had to make a bad phone call this morning. I had to make a mm-hmm. call I was not happy about making. Mm-hmm. After I hung up the phone, having mm-hmm. had a lovely conversation, mm-hmm. I tallied up the amount I was ruminating, which wasn't terrible. I'm better now. I'm older now. I'm, I'm a little more like than I, the younger Kelly. But still, the amount of energy, negative energy that I put into thinking about it was so not what happened in that 10-minute phone call. Yeah. It's like, we need to learn that lesson over and over and over again. And I'm absolutely sure on my deathbed, I still will not have learned it. Mm. 
<laughs> but but right but it's like it's like let's keep reminding ourselves let's keep we have to we have to do whatever we can do because this is a really hard human thing to overcome so hard and i think one thing that helps me disrupt those patterns that you're absolutely right will continue forever is just having language to right go somewhere else right so your brain when you're ruminating is trying to solve a problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's trying to actively solve a problem, but it it doesn't have your thoughts don't have anywhere to go. So we mistake, you know, worrying for preparation. Right. And you know, one of the ways to actually prepare is to offer your mind solutions-oriented thoughts. Like, what is the problem exactly? Yeah. Who could help me with this problem? Who has yeah. been here before? What if the worst thing happens and and then who can I go to for support? And like all of these kinds of cognitive habits. And we don't think of the way that we think as habitual, but it is. Right. And, you know, just like in your everyday life, your habits are really the architecture of your life. You know, your thought habits end up building the place where your mind lives and you can change your habits. You can't eradicate your mind from going to certain places. And who cares? That's not the goal. The goal is not eradication. Eradication doesn't work. So being able to say, I am someone who now that I'm 50 or 60 or whatever, I Mm -hmm. never do this anymore is not useful. A more useful question is what do I also know how to do? I know how to ruminate. I also know how to ask solutions-oriented questions. And the more lanes you can create in your brain, the more options you have. And when you have options, you're more in touch with your power and it's all interconnected in this way. I think too, this is very, I I know it's not, I know Eastern culture is not immune to this. Mm -hmm. However, they have better metaphors. And, and certainly in sort of Taoist philosophy, I, I just think that the, the, it's not about you, like what, yeah. whatever you, it, like you're, what you're building up about you. Like we teach this in improv. It's like you, you think everyone's sort of paying attention to, they're not, they're all paying attention to themselves. So yeah. first of all, recognize, uh, mm-hmm. I, I th- this was a, um, a, came up in the pod the other day, which was, I wish earlier in my career, I understood that the audience wants nothing except for me to succeed. That, mm-hmm. that. If there, mm. there, if there's a bad actor out there, I love that. Right? They, they do. They don't. Want e- you to and fail. even more so when you mess up, probably. Well, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. it's like me going to a movie. Like I hope this actor is terrible in this movie. Like no, mm-hmm. I've sat yeah. down here. I want this person to like do well. And, I and have so they're never probably, thought about right? it like that. I me love either. that. I me, love that. <laughs> my guest did the same thing. We're like, why? And oh no, she was a therapist. What? I'm only interviewing therapists. This is there's I, there's a point for all this. Um, I'm doing my own research, clearly. Mm-hmm. But no, but that is that is a what a what an amazing thing to sort of realize that takes the pressure off. And like I still we were talking about imposter syndrome. Like we all have yeah. it. Like yeah. I don't care. Like I've written a book, you've written a book, you've got like initials next to your title. I like there's all of these things that you can Google me and it looks cool. It doesn't matter. Like I'm still right. a human being who is like, oh, this like they're not gonna like understand or get get this. And then they do, and then I go again, I'll go whatever the next one is, and I'll have the same sort of stuff. And it's getting better. Like I'm mm-hmm. better about it, but it's not there, there is no way. I don't think to completely seal yourself off from that um, unless you have got some sort of like shamanistic or, or the other, or the other side of that. Right. Which is, which is narcissism. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I really relate to that. When I wrote this book, I was like, before it came out, I was just like, Oh, every, everybody, not everybody, but like most people are not going to get this, but I just had to write it because this is how I feel and think about this topic that is so important. And it's sort of the thing where you don't pick the book that you write, the book picks you. Right. And I, and I was like bracing for impact (laughs) Mm -hmm. of all these people being like, how could you say that? And you're wrong about this. And what were you thinking, especially in my field? Because perfectionism, talking about it in any kind of positive way when it is linked to some really serious downfalls yeah, felt like a huge risk, but it also felt like, well, this has been true in my work. 
This is showing up in the research and nobody is talking about this in a way that's very confusing to me. And I want to start a conversation and invite more conversation about this. But you're so right. That feeling of uh, they're all kind of come for me or something like that Mm -hmm. is so palpable and so funny that every time I get a DM or email and someone's like, thank you for writing this book. This, this matters to me. I feel seen. I'm like shocked still. I don't yeah. think that's going to wear off and I don't know if I want it to, you know? No, I know. I think that there's th- that, that there's, he- there's healthiness and, and it, Dan Pink talks about the power of regret, right. In his latest book. I love that like, book. I love me too. Book. And, and that was a really like that, that was a moment of, of, and Dan and I are friends and like, we've been corresponding. He's, he's, um he's kind of doing a sabbatical and he's taking acting classes. <laughs> Which I love, oh, cool. and not not that he wants to be an actor. He just wants to sort of experience experience this. And 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 the thing about the regret book that was so palpable and powerful for me is again again another yeah. way that we have assumed a word means a thing. Mm-hmm. We put this negative connotation on it, and then same with stress. Like like yeah. like like you, like every great performer is tapping into a level of stress that is. And, and again, that can be negative and it can be positive and, and because it's always two things. And it's that's a very hard thing, again, again, for humans to realize is that it's always two. It's at least two things. Yeah. Always. And we can just I, want it to be a thing. Go can ahead. I ask you this? Because this is something I struggle with in my work. Yeah. Because it feels so refreshing in the deepest way to really be present and really feel that charged moment. Um, it's it's turning a corner at 90 miles an hour for me to go into like my everyday world in some ways yes. mm-hmm. to the point where sometimes it's felt addictive is much too strong a word, but sometimes it's felt like, wait, is this an escape to go into the present moment in this well, weird way? You know, like, am I... Uh, do you ever feel that way where where it's sort of like you got to get back on on stage or you got to get back for me it's like i got to get back in the room i got to get back in my work i got to get back in this stuff and it's harder for me to find entry points i could do it but it's so much harder for me to find entry points in like my everyday life you know here is that that's really interesting so let me let's just gab on it um what i have discovered is my superpower mm-hmm. is my ability to be fully present in a room with another person and have them know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, uh, there's a phrase that near IL taught me, which is um, it's not a superpower unless it can be used for evil. Mm-hmm. So I also recognize Ooh. that my superpower is a thing that con people use when they're trying to con someone. Oh, so like, like when you feel seen, like this person yeah. sees me there, yeah. there are people, pe- so-called gurus in the improv scene who are some of the worst human beings that I have ever stumbled upon in part, because uh, in my view, they're using this incredibly yeah. great thing that they've got, which is this ability to make someone feel seen and they're using yeah. it for manipulative purposes. So, oh. That can sow doubt when you're when you're using it or doing it, mm-hmm. and, and that's and again that's the probably fact healthy. that you're in touch with the dichotomy. That's healthy, of the power, yeah. You, you because because mm-hmm. again, the, the when you have that ability, mm-hmm. you know, we can all be. Uh, I interviewed a restaurateur once uh, who talked about the fact that he learned to lock up the liquor cabinet at night before he left the restaurant to protect his employees. He didn't mm-hmm. see it as they're thieves. He saw it as they're humans and I've got to lock this shit up. And yeah. I loved that. I was like, yeah. yeah. So I think I think good on, on us to sort of recognize that. But then to, to your point in terms of taking this in, into real life, if I count down the best moments that I have in my life life, you just mm-hmm. it, it, it's always these little things where I was really present in mm-hmm. the moment. That's how I saw it. So we were, when we were talking earlier about imposter syndrome, I didn't, I wrote something down. Um, it, it's somewhat related to this. Okay. So um, again, like 
I, I, I read a lot. I've done a lot of this work. I feel like I'm fairly, I'm in therapy. I'm, I'm fairly self, self-actualized, all that stuff. Um, there's this great meat market, Polina meat market here in Chicago, legendary. I love mm-hmm. it. I am. It's, 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 and my, and my wife is like, she, she knows how to work that market. She's like, and I, do, I'm still, still learning. I get so intimidated by the butchers. Mm-hmm. That's when, when Anne makes me a list, I'm like, all right, you said boneless, skinless chicken breast. Now, yeah. do you mean the two? Do you want them split? Do you mean yeah. that? Because they're going to come back at me and, they're gonna, right. and I do not want to like, like, and, and why there are going to be people behind you in line expecting and, and, and you to, and it isn't, like, you don't have to really worry about that because it's, t- it's tickets and like, you've got your, like, it's not even that, it's not even that pressured, but I have, yeah. I have put all this on there that literally yeah. like, I will call her in the car. And I did this this last weekend, call mm-hmm. her in the car. I go, what do you mean? You have two <laughs> How many pounds? If you ask me how many pounds, I want to know how many pounds. It's like five. And I'm like, it's not five. And, and then I called her back later. It wasn't five pounds at all. It was like yeah. that threw that threw everything off and I had to go right. back. Yeah. But, like that's a thing. And, mm-hmm. and what I'm trying to do now recognizing this in myself, and I, especially this is the last weekend when I called her twice where I was like, this is not, there's no reason for this was also what, how can I amuse myself mm-hmm. with regard to this is how I feel in this, in this moment. And the way I kind of negotiated that in the moment, because I was conscious of, of this was just being playful with. Yeah. The butcher. Yeah. Yeah. He was fine. Yeah. He doesn't care. What does he care about this idiot? Like in front of it, like he would laugh so hard if I told him what was going on, probably. Right. Right. Well, that's the thing is I think, you know, I dedicated a chapter in this book to joy and giving yourself permission to feel joy now, as opposed yeah. to doing what a lot of people and particularly perfectionists, particularly, you know, high achievers, however you want to conceptualize it people do, which is intellectualizing joy and making a really excellent plan to be super happy later. And when you give yourself permission to feel joyful and good, you are really inviting the present moment in. And that's to me what I'm hearing most from that story you just told, which is it's not that I it's not that I eradicated insecurity or you know neuroses or however you want to put that. It's that I invited in playfulness, joy, yeah. spontaneity, yeah. things that you don't control, things mm-hmm. that you don't control. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people don't understand how important and informative pleasure is to you being able to enter the present moment. And pleasure is very different than immediate gratification. And pleasure is being able to engage with life in that like simple satisfaction way of, I'm not, you know, people hear the word pleasure and often think about sexual pleasure, which is of course a part of pleasure, but really a small part of the story. I'm talking about just the pleasure of opening the door for someone or the pleasure of making a joke with your, with the butcher and yeah. like letting yourself laugh about that and, and, you know, peppering those moments into your life where you give yourself permission to feel good is so important. And it's so hard because for yeah. me, it's hard because there is a lot of suffering in the world. And it yeah. sometimes feels like, well, if I'm joyful, is that an abandonment of all this stuff? The answer is no. I know that, but I need constant reminders. And not just on a macro level, but on a micro level, we all have people in our lives who are really suffering through something, a depression, mm-hmm. you know, this, that, whatever difficult transition. And sometimes it feels like you getting down in the trenches with them is some expression of solidarity, and it's not. And what is solidarity is you being your full, present, joyful, not even joyful, because there's a lot of pressure in that word, but just like not. You could stop at present. Yeah. This is, you know, having, you know, gone through tremendous grief. um, uh, We lost a child. Uh, Oh, my God. It's the worst. And she was Mm -hmm. 17, cancer, three years ago, four years ago. Um, I'm so sorry, Kelly. No, it's the worst. But I reflect on what was, what were the things that mattered in the moment, what mattered afterwards. And for people, like w- what I would tell people is like, y- you can just show up. Yeah. And that's all you need to do. If you just show up, 
You don't mm-hmm. need to bring anything. You don't need to say anything. It's just like that, that I know that you're going to show up for me mm-hmm. is, is a thing that was done over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And when, when you look at the literature and you realize that like everything depends on your relationships, this is yeah. everything mm-hmm. it, it is like, okay, then that that's actually, I don't need that much. There there's, there's you know, yes, there is therapy. Yes, yeah. there's uh, taking care of my body and working out and eating better. And yes, there there's all, all these sorts of things that are really important. They're all part of it. But around it is not yeah. complex. Yeah. Yeah. My people. I got my people. Yeah. 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 And you're, you know, you're talking about something that the research world is trying to scream at the general public. They, yes. Which is that the number one indicator of mental health is your relational wealth. Mm-hmm. And how many people, including yourself, do you feel understood by, cared for, supported, and that you are also helping and, you know, showing up in a time of complete darkness like that yep. um, is all you need to do. And, you you know, I think people often feel like they need to not share good news or not do this or not do that. And and I've walked a lot of people through gr- grief and been in so much grief as all human beings have um, in some way or another. And I'm always struck by what people tell me they remember about those moments. Mm. And it's never the person who offered a solution to their problem because there is no solution to grief. There's no, there's no solution to it. It's the people that just said in one way or another, I am with you. Yep. Yep. It's, it's, it, I, 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 the, the flood that's going through my mind is our, our friend, Susan, uh, mm-hmm. putting flowers on our front step. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> didn't ring the doorbell, you know, whatever. And that was, that, that was it. And there was so, so much of that. And then how, and we talk about this a lot in the pod of, of what workplaces are starting to understand because they've been forced to with COVID and otherwise is that like your workplace is not immune from the tragedies that are befalling all the humans who work here. Cause guess what? Everyone's parents die. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that is tragic for every human being. It was tragic for me. It happened years ago. And I have young colleagues who it's, they're dealing with that stuff now and grandparents and other things. And then you have these other tragedies and, and, and a lot of people are, are, um, silent about it. Yeah. And that's not helping. It's going the other way. That's right. I mean, just this morning I was on Instagram, good old Instagram. And I saw my friend who had a baby five months ago. Yep. And she put in her stories, her baby was born eight weeks premature and was in the NICU for, for like two months. Yeah. And she put in her stories, you know, five months, Jamie's five months. That's her son's name. And she said the best day by far, other than taking him home was when a nurse who she never met on Halloween dressed all the babies up in safari themed costumes that the nurse made herself and bought mm-hmm. the materials for herself. She put a picture, my friend put a picture on her stories of her baby in all these wires with a shark hat on, like the baby hat had these little teeth yep. and it just gave me chills to see. And I just thought, God, like kindness really matters and connection yeah. matters. Yeah. And that is what we're all trying to do. And, you know, part of the message of this book is we are just trying to connect to a sense of wholeness and a sense of community. And mm-hmm. you can't do that if you feel disconnected to yourself. And it's not iterative. It's not like, first, you have to get yourself all straightened out. Then you can connect healthfully <laughs> to others. Right. Don't wait for that. Like You need other people to help mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Get, mm-hmm. get connected to yourself. And you're so right. And it's so beautifully put that, you know, you kind of lay the bricks of, look, don't go nuts with overeating, overworking, overdrinking, all that stuff. Eat healthfully, sleep, you know, drink water, walk every day. But after after that, like it's connection that really makes people feel alive, which is what people really want to feel. And you don't need to be an extrovert. Like like I'm married to an introvert. 
you know, yeah. I know I'm an extrovert. I have tons of people. I know that she has yeah. tons of people and she's an introvert. It's, it's, it's just, and it's, it's, Oh, I'm the biggest introvert. Yeah, yeah. I want your wife and I can have an introvert content. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And, and again, again, cause it doesn't need, don't overthink it. It is a, yeah. like, just thinking of you email. It, it doesn't like it, it's it, it, okay. So, so, I, so, so simple. Yeah. I could talk to you forever. I'm going to ask you for a yes hand story in a moment, but before we mm-hmm. do that, there was a, mm-hmm. Two, two things I want to draw on. One is one of the things that we talk about um, both in improvisation, but in comedy in general is this idea of starting in the middle. Mm-hmm. So if you think about really good theatrical work, there's not a lot of exposition that happens up top. And I always hate it when they do that, like giving me a scroll to tell me the 25 things I need to know. No, can you get me into the scene? So I pretty much know what's happening and, and, and then, and get into the meat of it. Yeah. And then you say later in the book, quote, Experiences swirl around in spheres. When you demarcate healing with midway points and finishing lines, you make healing a race and something that ends. Healing is neither. Spheres have no sides. Mm -hmm. Beautiful writing. Thank you for that. Thank you. But also this, this idea of like, oh yeah, we need to fit it in a box and not only... Is that not going to work? There's no box. Yeah. And it is never ending. And that's not a bad thing. It's never ending because we are allowing our experiences to change who we are. And when we change, we respond to things around us a little bit differently. And, you know, it's the, it's the move this ship one degree and you get to a whole other location. And then, you know, it all keeps exponentially expanding and that's a good thing you know mm-hmm. you're not, you don't want to be done no <laughs> you don't want to be done it's you don't okay. want to be done and so you know i think people understanding that like there is no finish line yes but there also thank god there's no finish line because it can feel exhausting when you're in it when you're in a divorce or in loss or in you know, a habit that you cannot break, that you know is destructive to you, that you just cannot disrupt in a in a way that feels meaningful to you. It can be so exhausting to continue to commit to change and improvement. Um, and just being able to center yourself in your worthiness, regardless of your performance or speed in arriving, quote unquote, at who you think you want to be, just understanding that really, if nobody, if you get nothing else from this book, if people can just understand that the version of you that did all the things and checked off the to-do list and looks the way you want to look and all that stuff is just as worthy as the you who's sitting here now in a, in a stained t-shirt and a list of total things I did not do yesterday, and, you right. know, you are worthy at all moments. It's prearranged. You don't have a hand in it. You know, my friend Heather, who's a behavioral scientist uh, and worked at uh, works at a business school, uh, always hated the um, metaphor around climbing the corporate ladder because she's like, "What happens when you get to the top? There's only one place to go, and that's down, and yeah. that's just bad in terms of like how we're living a, a life." And it's like, can't. What if we had a metaphor uh, that was more around this uh, a home that sometimes you're adding to, and sometimes you're getting rid of annexes, and it depends on where you are. And sometimes that mm-hmm. home might be a boat because it might need to go somewhere else. Yeah. And, and like again, to, to the very early point of this, you know, can we deconstruct this term? Uh, mm-hmm. perfectionism, uh, so that we can then find the useful bits inside there, mm-hmm. um, to, to live a, a, um, I'll put it like a flourishing life. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, the connectedness that you're talking about really is ringing true for me. And the first person, and then I know that we have to go, but I have to talk about him, yeah. um, who introduced the word perfectionism into psychological literature, framed all quote unquote neuroses as the, as an absence of connection. Mm. Dr. Alfred Adler and he said, you know, if we were all clean clothed, fed, free and loved, there would be no perfectionism because that innate impulse what that really is is just us trying to repair all the disconnection that we see and the ideal this new and improved version that we're all seeking is just one in which we all take care of each other. Uh 
before I ask you for this, I actually, I, I found this quote from Herman Hesse when I was th- thinking about uh, this conversation. Uh, he said, quote, there is truth, my boy, but the doctrine you desire, absolute perfect dogma that alone provides wisdom does not exist, nor should you long for a perfect doctrine, my friend. Rather, you should long for the perfection of yourself. The deity is within you, not in ideas and books. Truth is lived, not taught. Uh, you need to email that to me. <laughs> I love that. I've never heard that. Me either. I, love that. Yes. I was looking for quotes and I found this one. I'm like, oh, oh it's so beautiful, lived, Kelly. I know I say in the book, you already are perfect. You don't yeah. need to try to be something you already are. You're already whole. You're already complete. You know, yeah. enjoy yeah. it. Have fun with it. Well, and then, again, that first quote about like laughter, I immediately thought of my wife's laugh. And I'm like, I, why would I change anything like that yeah. like no it is yeah. everything and it's yeah. whole all right yeah. um we always end with a yes hand story do you have one for us yes i do so there are lofty ways to think about the yes and but this was the first thing that popped in into my mind which is someone sent me a dm um on instagram maybe, yeah Maybe two days ago. Rule three. We've uh, mentioned Instagram three times in this podcast. I know. I know. That's good. We completed the circle. Good. Um, Which was a really thoughtful, kind of long explanation of how she just had a book club about the perfectionist guide to losing control. And she just wanted me to know some things that were talked about in the book club and and why it was meaningful. And should they have a follow-up book club? Because it went until midnight. I probably wouldn't, but since she's in New York City too, would I come? Mm-hmm. And I, my instinct in those moments, because I'm an extra, and because I'm an introvert, yeah. and because it's like a stranger, and and what's going on, and all this stuff, is no. But I thought, yes, and. I want to be home by eight thirty. <laughs> <So, laughs> no midnight. So I just thought like. Yes, I will say yes to that. Yeah. I will say yes to a time box moment of connection that could be hit or miss or something in between. And it also inspired me to to ask people stuff because the best way to not get what you want is to not ask people for it, you know? Right, and it's like a right. guaranteed every time. And so I wrote her back and said yes. And she was like, what? Really? Wow. Oh, we're doing it in April. And it's just one of those moments where it's yes and... And then it's also, now, who do I want to ask for something that will probably say no, but they might not, you know? Never know. know. Uh, The book is called The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Catherine Morgan Schaffler, thank you for coming on the pod. This was so wonderful. I loved this conversation. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive 